This is the train to New Haven, State Street. The next station is... Just getting off the train here at New Haven on a very crisp fall morning. Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Birosli. Okay, an Uber is two minutes away. 30 years ago this week, the world watched in awe as thousands thronged the wall that divided more than just a city, a country, and a continent, but the world. These are the sights and sounds of the continuing celebration of Germans. Occasionally they shout, Die Mauer muss weg, the wall must go. Thousands and thousands of West Germans come to make the point that the wall has suddenly become irrelevant. The fall of the Berlin Wall on November 9th, 1989, marked the beginning of the end of the Cold War. How do you measure such an astonishing moment in history? Two years later, the Soviet Union collapsed. The red flag came down over the Kremlin tonight as President Gorbachev resigned and brought to an end seven decades of communist rule in the Soviet Union. Democracy, many declared, had won. Fast forward three decades and democracy is in crisis. Ours was not a campaign, but rather an incredible and great movement. This means that the UK has voted to leave the European Union. The Yellow Vest protest movement, it has been the swelling. The Yellow Vest or Gilets Jaunes movement kicked off in mid-November in reaction to a government plan to increase fuel taxes. In How did we get here? Wonderful. Thank you so okay, much. Nice day. Okay, you have a great day. John Lewis Gaddis joins us today to discuss the legacy of the Berlin Wall and the broader issues of the Cold War. Hi, Professor Gaddis. Elmira. Hi, Elmira. Hi. He is the Robert A. Lovett Professor of History at Yale. So nice to meet you. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Sure. And the author of several books, including The Cold War, A New History. We speak to him at his home in New Haven. You can just put uh, coats and stuff like that maybe on the back of the sofa there, I think. Perfect. We're here on the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, which was a huge historic turning point. Mm-hmm. Could you take us through on how and why that happened? Well, I will remember that particular day because I was um, sitting in my office back at Ohio University, which is where I was teaching at that point. And it had been a long day. And a student reporter from the student newspaper called up and said, please comment, urgently comment. And I said, on what? And she said, Europe. And I said, go away, (laughs) and had no idea what had happened until I got home and turned on the television and then saw the wall coming down and the Berliners dancing on the wall. How it happened, how uh, the wall went up uh, before going down, uh, is really an artifact of what happened to Germany in the wake of World War II. Uh, Because uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, played the major role in the defeat of uh, Hitler. There's no question about that. They bore something like 90% of the burden. But the Americans and the um, British and the Free French were, of course, also involved. And at the end of the war, the uh, agreement was made to have occupation zones for Germany, uh, for each of those powers. And then for the capital, former capital, Berlin, also to be occupied. But there was no peace settlement uh, after World War II. And so what happened was that those zones of occupation froze into uh, eventually separate countries with the establishment of uh, West Germany, the German Federal Republic in 1949, and then East Germany, the so-called German Democratic Republic shortly thereafter. 
But what happened was that uh, West Germany became an economic miracle. Uh, it began to thrive under the stimulus of the Marshall Plan and its own enterprise, its own entrepreneurial spirits. And so by the uh, second half of the 1950s, uh, this was a showcase for capitalism of great appeal. Uh, it was still possible for the East Germans to cross over into West Berlin, though not into West Germany. There was no wall at that point. So a pattern of migration began to develop uh, where it's estimated uh, by 1961, something like one sixth of the population of East Germany had found their way across to West Berlin and then from there into West Germany. And that could not be sustained. The uh, East German uh, government simply could not keep up uh, its own survival under those conditions. So that's basically how the wall went up in 1961, in August of 1961, to staunch that flow of immigration. Uh, and that was uh, a pretty stable condition from that time until 1989, when the wall suddenly uh, came down. Was it so sudden, though? Yes, it was quite sudden. Uh, the, 1989 was a sudden year. Ex explanation for this uh, is one that's totally unexpected. Uh, the Soviet Union under Gorbachev made it clear that the Soviet Union would not use force, would no longer use force to keep its uh, satellite states in line. And you have to remember it had used force. It used force in Berlin in 1953. It used force in Poland and in Hungary, particularly in 1956. It used force in Prague and in Czechoslovakia in 1968. But suddenly the word went out in this instance uh, that uh, the Soviet Union was no longer prepared to use force. And this suddenly opened up the way for the states of East Central Europe, which had been Soviet satellites all this time, uh, to begin to break loose from alignment with uh, the Soviet Union. The East German regime, headed by Eric Honecker, was one of the last to do this. And through a curious bureaucratic foul up in the East German regime. On the uh, ninth, uh, the evening of the 9th of November, the announcement was made by a low-ranking press spokesman that the wall would now be open and that the East uh, Germans would be allowed to uh, cross over into West Berlin. And it's still a mystery as to how this screw up, which is what it was, uh, took place. But once that announcement went out, spontaneity, which was not a characteristic of the East German regime, erupted. And this was uh, when the East Germans stormed the wall. And the wall was open within a matter of hours uh, in that uh, situation. Gorbachev was not consulted on this. Honecker was not consulted on this outcome uh, specifically. But Gorbachev, when uh, told of this the next day, he said, fine. He said, of course, Germans should unite. Why should Germans be separated? And that validated uh, the whole thing. So there was never any effort to try to close the wall again. And after the Berlin Wall did open up or essentially fall, as we, as we in the West like to, to frame it, the number of democracies worldwide jumped in the years following. Absolutely. And so you went from 45 in 1988 to 74 just four years later. Why was the demise of the Soviet empire such a boon for democratic change? 
Well, I think it showed that uh, the alternative which had existed throughout the post-World War II period, which was the Marxist-Leninist model of development on an authoritarian, uh, within an authoritarian framework, just had not worked. It was not clear at the end of World War II that that would be the case, because capitalism had been discredited by the events of the 1930s, the Depression, the rise of Nazism and all fascism. Uh, the Soviet Union's record of industrialization in the 1930s looked very solid, and then the Soviet Union went on to largely win the war against Hitler. And so any uh, country looking at models of development in 1945, or even maybe as late as 1950, might well have seen a great deal of attractiveness in the Marxist-Leninist uh, model. Certainly the Chinese did. Uh, Mao took power in China in 1949. But when it became apparent that uh, the Marxist-Leninists could not perform, could not deliver a better standard of living for their own people, and that was uh, evident within the Soviet Union, it was certainly evident within uh, the um, Eastern European states, and it was all the more obvious uh, in Berlin because all you had to do was cross the border, get on the subway, ride two minutes, and you were into a completely different world. Uh, it became an unsustainable contrast. And so nothing is left then for Honecker or for the East Germans or for Gorbachev other than to just acknowledge the failure of Marxism-Leninism and that by default uh, left the capitalist democratic model triumphant for the moment. You note that Gorbachev said, why shouldn't Germany reunify? But a lot of people didn't have that sentiment throughout Europe, and there was considerable concern about German reunification. Why didn't the fear of a dominant Germany prevent that process from playing out? One of the people who had great concerns about that was Mrs. Thatcher, who was the British prime minister at this period, and she was profoundly distrustful of the possibility of a unified Germany. You have to remember that when the wall came down, it did not mean that there would be a unified German state. All that had happened was that the city was unified, but the two regimes on paper were still there. So the question was going to be, uh, would there be two regimes that would continue to be there, or would West Germany absorb East Germany? The main architects of unification were Helmut Kohl, the chancellor of West Germany uh, at the time, and George Bush, who had become president of the United States in 1989. And Bush, I think very much to his credit, saw that there was no way to stop this. And it was far better to work with it than try to dig in uh, heels and just uh, screech and say, stop, 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 you know, which was unrealistic in that, in that situation. Uh, and he made the gamble, as did Cole, that the unified Germany still would not necessarily be a disruptive force in uh, future European politics. I think that's largely been borne out. But there was no stopping it once this happened. And this gets back to what Gorbachev said on the next day. He said, there's no way to stop this. Once Germans decide that they uh, are one people and ought to be one people, uh, they will become one people. Today I say, as long as this gate is closed, as long as this scar of a wall is permitted to stand, it is not the German question alone that remains open, but the question of freedom for all mankind. But I think Germany itself is still struggling with the legacy of reunification. 
And you see a lot of polls that say that a lot of particularly East Germans are very discontent with their lives. Certainly unemployment is very high in the eastern part of the country. And you do see the rise of the far-right party surging in that region. It was a night of celebration for the AFD party following its historic surge in Germany's federal election. Established only four years ago, its success sent shockwaves across the country, marking a major change in the political landscape. Could reunification have been handled any differently than it was? The larger issue, which it seems to me is out there, and this very much affects the United States as well, uh, all capitalist countries, is really the growth of economic inequality and the disparities between the extremely wealthy uh, people and then the people who are down at the other end of the income scale, which is almost a declining um, middle class, uh, for sure. The other thing that happened was the crash of 2008, which showed that the extremely wealthy managers of the hyper-economy didn't know what they were doing. It was that crisis was a demonstration of utter incompetence on the part of the people who were supposed to be managing the economy and making sure that the benefits of it were shared. These are significant issues. And they're not unlike some of the issues that had surfaced in post-World War I Germany, where there was hyperinflation, which we don't have now. But there was a similar situation of people not being able to hold on to their status, even in the middle class. Uh, and their savings being eroded, all of this, that really gave rise uh, to authoritarianism, which then took the form of uh, fascism uh, and ultimately Nazism. So similar conditions uh, exist, it seems to me now. Uh, And I would put a lot of emphasis on the economic crisis of 2008 as contributing to this. And this is having the effect of uh, shaking all kinds of established procedures and ideas and uh, political certainties. So um, Brexit can be explained, I think, to a considerable extent in this. Trump can certainly be explained in these terms, it seems to me, as well. Uh, And uh, it seems to me that uh, the resurgence, the apparent resurgence of authoritarianism, uh, the apparent popularity of uh, strongmen, So Putin in Russia and Xi in China may well also reflect something like this, uh, seeing that uh, the Western model is not as attractive as it uh, should have been, as it looked like it would be some 10 years ago. And so people are looking at other models. How long authoritarians can get by with being authoritarian, however, is a really good question because they do tend to abuse their authority. They don't allow term limits. They're there forever. They grow old in these jobs. Uh, They get senile. They get worried about very silly things like President Xi being compared to Winnie the Pooh. And so Winnie the Pooh has been banned from China. That's totally ridiculous. That's a sign of great uh, weakness and lack of confidence. So authoritarians have vulnerabilities, and modern authoritarians have these too. Uh, And uh, where we'll be five years from now is a really good question. 
Once again, an overall majority for Jarosław Kaczynski's National Conservative Party. It's a very disappointing night for the Polish opposition, which had billed these elections as a sort of last chance for Polish democracy. You say it openly. I want to create not a, a liberal democracy, but I want to go to an illiberal state. And my request to you is, how far will you go? What is the next thing? Burning books or so? On the place before the parliament in Hungary? When we take a look at places like Poland and Hungary, where authoritarianism is on the rise, you're talking about you know, a generation that still exists that remembers what it was like living under communism and under Soviet rule. How can you then explain the res- this rise in Germany and, and in Poland? Because those people who remember what it was like and who lived through what it was like are all getting older, and there are fewer and fewer of them, and there are more and more young people all the time who don't know what it was like, but who do know what their present conditions are, you see. And uh, that ultimately is what moves history. Uh, Remembering what it was like may well move historians who write books about this, you know, whatnot. Uh, But that is a diminishing population over a period of time. Memories do fade. People react to the conditions that most immediately affect them. They don't react to what they may remember from 30 or 40 years ago as much. So we're talking about authoritarianism here. And you note that the end of the Cold War settled a number of basic issues. Mm -hmm. One was that weapons need not be used. Mm -hmm. And another one is that authoritarianism was not able to withstand the opportunity that democracy enabled. You've also previously mentioned in your your work um, George Kennan, the architect of America's Cold War policy of containment of the Soviet Union, that he believed democracy was fragile. Mm -hmm. How do you see things today? Is democracy in decline? Uh, It is in decline, of course, uh, in contrast to where it was um, 15, 20, 30 years ago, for sure. Its reputation is in decline, yes. What has happened is that there has been a polarization of politics. Uh, It's not the first time that this has happened. Democracy used to be conducted with mutual respect for the people on both sides of the debate. That's been largely lost uh, now. The joker in this deck, the new phenomenon in this uh, uh, mix, is obviously the rise of uh, social media and uh, the Internet. And what that has done, it's a completely new influence on this, the ability to communicate uh, Just instantly, anybody can say anything and have it spread out to millions of people under certain circumstances if it goes viral. That's new. No society in the past has ever had anything like that. So what the implications of that might be in terms of maintaining the mutual trust that you need uh, within a constitutional system or within a a democratic system is, uh, I would say, somewhat problematic at this time. This country has been through things like this uh, before. So populism, quote-unquote, is no new phenomenon, uh, and it's often tied to new technologies. So you could see the age of Andrew Jackson as a period in which elite authority was called into question uh, by uh, so-called common people, 
And you can tie it to a new technology, which was the advent of the printed newspaper and mass circulation of newspapers, which are just beginning at that point. Uh, you can see populism as having arisen again in the late 19th century as a result of industrialization and uh, the uh, railroads and the extent to which uh, uh, local farmers and local businessmen uh, found themselves being uh, victimized by big organizations that were remote and didn't have their interests uh, at heart. Uh, and that was certainly tied to technological developments and it gave rise to uh, reform movements like uh, progressivism and ultimately the New Deal, uh, just as Jacksonian democracy gave rise to certain reforms as well. Uh, so we have histories like this uh, in the past, and we've managed, in this country at least, for those to be rather creative uh, impetuses to reform, reform in this country tending to come from the bottom up, tending to come from experimentation in cities and states, and then coming up to the national level. Whether that can happen now in this situation whether the states and the localities are capable of uh, coming up with solutions to the current populist uh, crisis remains to be seen, but I would be relatively optimistic because I think it's far more likely to come from the states and the cities than it is from the top down. One of the great things about federalism is that it's a test bed for experimentation. And that's precisely one of the things that's missing in an authoritarian system is that ability to tolerate diverse uh, systems to allow local experimentation. The United States under Donald Trump seems to have abandoned its commitment to the liberal world order, which was established after World War II. And when you take a look at Trump and his rhetoric, it seems that he's, he's more in favor of an older worldview, which is America first, with this isolationist overtone. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Regardless of whether he is reelected in 2020, is the liberal world order over? The liberal world order is not necessarily a default position for the United States. The United States has had several default positions in its, in its history. Uh, so yes, the liberal world order is one of the great traditions, which could be said to go all the way back to uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, for example. Uh, but there is a different uh, American uh, tradition, which is in its own way one of America first, uh, which goes back to Hamilton. It has to do with government support for economic development. It has to do with high tariffs. We were a high tariff country through most of our history. Uh, low tariffs uh, are just a, an invention, basically, of the, of the New Deal. We had the Wilsonian uh, world order, which uh, was almost quasi-religious, you know. And as the historian Walter Russell Mead has pointed out, we had the Jacksonian tradition uh, as well. And this is Professor Mead's distinctive contribution to analyzing uh, these things. And I think it's a very useful one in understanding where we are now. Because we, we had Jackson, we've had Jacksonians in the past. Trump is squarely within that tradition which is not just America first, but it is appearing to show contempt 
for established orders for anybody who seems privileged, for anybody who seems politically correct, and so on. And um, there's a big audience for this kind of thing. There are a vast number of people out in the middle of the country, often not listened to by the elite establishments on the, on the east and west coasts, uh, who do vote uh, and did vote in 2016. And their views were, were missed by the pundits, I think, and certainly by the Democratic uh, Party and its candidate. And it all boils down, it seems to me, to um, the ability to explain to everybody, if you're a leader, why you're doing something. And it seems to me what has happened within the democracies is that they've become so sophisticated uh, in defending uh, the liberal world order that they cannot explain the liberal world order to average people. So you say, we should support the liberal world order. And then the auto worker in Akron says, why should I support the liberal world order? It's thrown me out of work and my plant has been shut down. I think when you get a gap like this uh, between uh, what what people's common sense tells them to say uh, and what political conventional wisdom is, I think that's a prescription for a Jacksonian approach. And uh, so I'm not totally surprised by what's happening. In the end, does democracy always win? I would make this distinction. I would uh, compare this to the construction of buildings in earthquake zones. So if you were in uh, California, for example, and you were putting up a skyscraper, you would not use the building standards that would have applied in Kansas City, right? In Kansas City, you'd put up, you'd be worried about tornadoes, and so you'd worry about that, you see. But in San Francisco, you're certainly going to be worried about earthquakes and you would be building in resilience against earthquakes. That's a difference in construction, and it means taking into account the environment that you're working in, it seems to me as well. I think democracy and authoritarianism are somewhat like this because it does seem to me over the long run, democracy has greater resilience, greater flexibility, is able to adapt uh, to changing circumstances, is able to weather crises uh, better than authoritarianism. Authoritarian states, it seems to me, are brittle. They are rigid. uh, And uh, they may look very successful, but when something comes along for which they're not prepared, they can just utterly collapse and fall apart, as the Soviet Union did in 1989-91. And it seems to me democracies, uh, for the most part, are not that way. They have a capacity to bounce back. One of the biggest things uh, in that resilience is term limits. The fact that no democracy has an indefinite permanent uh, leader, otherwise it's not a democracy. Uh, And the fact that most authoritarian systems uh, have no way of getting rid of the authoritarian when he gets old and senile and quirky and uh, out of touch. So I think that's a great weakness of authoritarian systems, and I think it's a great strength of uh, democratic systems. So in the long run, yes, I would say if I had to choose, I'd very much prefer to be in a democratic system for these reasons. But that does not preclude uh, uh, short-term defeats, short-term setbacks, and all of that, for sure. Thank you so okay. much. <laughs> it was such a pleasure to talk to you. That was John Lewis Gaddis, the Robert A. Lovett Professor of History at Yale. He's the author of several books, including The Cold War, A New History. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Rosley.